Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it. This is a very special episode of Cold Steel. The murder of George Floyd is yet another example in a very long list of visually disturbing interactions between visible minorities and authority figures in America. While heartbreaking in its own right, this event and the subsequent global social ignition that has followed has prompted a broader discussion on racial equity across society. This conversation is equally important within medicine and in particular surgery. We are lucky enough today to be joined by three guests. Morad Hamid and Shazir Karmali are friends of the podcast and known to many of you. But we also have Dr. Julius Ebenu, who himself has an amazing story of migration as a teenager from Swaziland, Africa to Canada, has completed a PhD at the University of Alberta, a postdoc degree at Harvard University, and who has worked both previously in New York City as a neurosurgeon and currently in Sacramento, California. The panel's comments and call for change are food for thought for all of us at a very deep level. Well, welcome to a very special edition of, uh, of Cold Steel, um, the, the surgical podcast. Uh, we, we thought given the intensity and the magnitude of, of recent uh, events, not only in, in, the, in the United States and Canada, but really throughout the world, that we should probably address it and, and have a conversation. So we're very lucky to have um, uh, really four uh, great guests, including Amir, who, of course, you uh, as listeners all know. And our goal today was to talk and explore the concept of, of racial equity and, in particular, how that impacts surgery, um, you know, not, not only in Canada, but also in the U.S. Um, so may, maybe with that in mind, then, uh, um, Dr. Abinu, uh, we're hoping that maybe you could give us your general thoughts on racial diversity within surgery as a whole. And in particular for our listeners, you know, as, as somebody who, um, you know, spent the first part of, of your life in Swaziland and then moving to Canada and now working in, in the U.S. As a, as a neurosurgeon. Yes, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks, Dr. Ball. It's uh, obviously great to be on here and uh, to have this discussion, especially in light of uh, what's going on in our uh, world today, uh, more so here in the United States. Um, you know, I think as far as race goes, um, you know, it's safe to say that throughout Canada and also throughout the United States, there's steadily becoming an increase in the diversity of, of uh, the population as a whole. And as far as healthcare goes, um, you know, it's important when one considers healthcare delivery and healthcare um, disparities or equity, as it was, as it were, um, to ensure that that same diversity is reflected um, within the healthcare workforce. Um, and you know, I've had the, the privilege of of uh, training in Canada uh, and then working in the United States on the East Coast, New York City, and, and now on the West Coast in, in Sacramento. And it's, it's been very interesting to me to see um, how there is diversity or lack thereof, both within the healthcare workforce, um, within the trainees that are within the system, and also um, as far as the, um, 
the disparities within the healthcare delivery uh, to the patients that uh, that we see. So I, I think it's an important um, topic to, to 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 talk about. I think here in the United States, they have at least acknowledged that it is a problem, um, and uh, you know that disparity is more more apparent with the, um, the pandemic that's going on right now. So. So understanding that it is a problem, acknowledging that it is a problem, and then sort of working towards some of the potential solutions to address it um, are, are all important um, within surgery and within healthcare as a, as a whole. Curious, Julius, how has the pandemic informed or impacted this greater conversation on racial diversity specifically? Yeah. So, you know, what we're noticing here in the United States is that um, more so the minority population, those of color uh, or other mi minority ethnic groups that tend to be um, more affected as far as um, contracting the virus and uh, either being hospitalized and dying. Um, and, you know, the question has become, you know, why is it that uh, despite the percent, percentage population of minorities within a certain, certain uh, you know, city, why is there a disproportionately higher amount of uh, minorities being affected? And, and I think it it really boils down to some of the um, systemic issues here in the United States as far as the healthcare system goes, um, and uh, more so how healthcare is viewed and practiced um, in the United States. Uh, and what do I mean by that? Well, you know, by and large, um, you know, as opposed to in Canada, healthcare is not accessible uh, to all here in the United States. Uh, there are certain barriers that, that exist. Um, and healthcare is, for the most part, considered a privilege, right? So um, the higher socioeconomic status you have, the more access you have, uh, the more privileges you have as far as uh, your health is concerned. And that's both in terms of uh, preventive measures as well as, you know, treatment or surgical interventions. Um, and so with this whole pandemic, what they're realizing is those um, uh, population groups that have not had that consistent access for reasons such as their socioeconomic status, um, uh, are, are tend to be disproportionately affected by the virus. And I think it's, it's highlighting some of the inequities in, in, the, in the system as a whole, uh, more so as it pertains to access to healthcare and implementing some of the preventive measures that would render um, certain populations, um, you know, put them in a better, in a better place to, to, to be resilient towards, towards fighting this virus. Uh, it's really interesting. Um, you know, Shaz, in, in Canada, both at the Canadian Surgery Forum level as well as the Canadian Association of General Surgeons, you've been a very vocal proponent, and I know it's certainly a passion of yours with regard to the concept of racial equity. And, you know, I, I've always sort of thought from afar that you've balanced that very nice with gender equity most recently in the last couple of years. How, how do you view uh, this sort of whole topic uh, from a Canadian perspective? And just for the listeners to, to, to know... Um, you know, Shazir did spend uh, a little bit of time in, in Houston training doing bariatrics, so it does have that American flavor as well. Yeah, so it's a very interesting topic, Chad. So, you know, when we look at Canada as a general, when you compare Canada to U.S., Canada's usually, you know, seen as a very diverse and multicultural population. There's always this idea of, you know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm obviously a you know, visual minority, so the difference between Canada and the U.S. is this idea that, you know, Canada... Um, both this idea of multiculturalism, whereas in the U.S. it's this idea of a melting pot, right? In the U.S., you all melt and you're U.S. first, right? Whereas Canada, 
you know, I'm an Indio, Indo-Canadian, right? Like, so it's, it's this different, different idea. So generally Canada is seen as this kind of multicultural diverse population, but when you kind of dig into it a little bit more and you look at medicine in general, and is there, is there diversity really in medicine? And there was, there's a really good article published um, in the CMAJ, and this is kind of where some of the interest comes about by um, a, a person actually that uh, that some of us know as Moniza Walji. Um, so she published this idea on diversity in medical education, and, and it delved into this idea as, you know, is there is there diversity truly in the medical system? And interestingly, you know, I as as an academic, I'm involved in you know medical school interviews and, and stuff like that. And interesting, like diversity isn't really a question that's asked. We don't really ask students who apply, you know, what racial background are you? I guess it could be taken in either way. And and the interesting thing is so they they looked at their studies and 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 what she did is they published the idea of like, you know, how diverse is is medical education. I'll just kind of quote a couple things that she quoted. So um <clears throat> you know our Canadian data, you know, we look at diverse uh, minority groups and so minor groups like what i and amir represent you know and more at you know south southeast and east asians though actually really well represented in medical medical schools there tend to be you know within 30 to 40 percent of medical school classes but there are other groups that are very underrepresented and specifically when you look at aboriginal groups like they are ranking around 1.6 percent and when you jump towards you know individuals who identify themselves as African or Caribbean, it drops to, you know, two to 4%. So it's very interesting when you look at diversity in Canada, and this is kind of where my take on what was looking at my association, the Canadian Association of General Surgeons, the idea that, you know, we may, we may see ourselves as diverse and, and welcoming, but I don't think we're as diverse as we think we are. And we have a lot of ways to go in terms of ensuring that, a lot of groups are included this idea of diversity, even if, you know, there's a lot of Southeast Asians or Asians included. Does that mean just because we're there that we're being diverse to other minority groups? And so that's that's kind of my take on it and my idea. And this is why I've been kind of proposing the idea of, of global diversity and make sure all groups are included in this diverse concept. Yeah, that's very well said, Shaz. You, you've really been a champion to that nationally in the last few years and, and you know, all of us can't thank you enough. Morad, Dr. Hamid, if we come over to you, I, I'm curious how you uh, frame and how you process the concept of racial diversity within surgery, and in particular, although I think we'll get into it a little bit later, with your leadership position as the as the section head of general surgery and, and on a big institution like UBC, how, how does that inform and impact what how you think of it and what you do? Yeah, thanks, Chad. Uh, uh, for me, um, growing up in um, in Edmonton in the 70s and 80s, I was uh, very uh, conscious of uh, race and of racism, and um, I expected to encounter it uh, in uh, when I started my my medical uh, when I started medical school and um, surgical residency. Um, but um, surprisingly, I my personal experience. Um, hasn't has been very positive. Uh, I've never personally encountered uh, uh, racism, uh, to my knowledge. And um, my uh, colleagues have always been a diverse group um, with very positive uh, interactions. Um, and I guess this follows up on 
what I understood Shaz to say just now, which is that um, there is some apparent diversity in in um, the surgical workforce, but um, maybe it's not uh, uniform, and maybe there's not. We still have a long way to go before we achieve true uh, equity and diversity in the workforce. Um, but at a high level, um, at a, and a, for me personally, um, my experience has been good, and I've always felt welcomed by my um, mentors and um, by my colleagues and by my patients. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, that that lens of uh, being aware of race also transcends to uh, our patient experiences. And um, our research groups have done a lot of work on the social determinants of health and thinking about race. And, and Shaz and Chad, you've been involved in many of those studies. And we see, a, you know, we know that this problem exists because we see it um, in in access to healthcare and in the outcomes of healthcare um, uh, among our patients. Um, so I guess I'm, in, in summary, you know, I, I, my personal experience in, in healthcare has been good. I know that we have a long way to go. Um, I would love to tell you um, what approach we're taking with the Division of General Surgery at UBC. Um, and from from the perspective of our patients, our, our, our studies have joined uh, a great body of literature in the world that shows that there's a tremendous disparity uh, based on the social determinants of health that remain to be uh, explored further. Julius, if we if we come back to you, I, I realize this is a hard question and, and I appreciate your thoughts, but, um, you know, in particular, you know, having been in the U.S. for a while and then, as we mentioned, growing up in Canada for a large part of your, your youth, um, within medicine anyway, what are some of the potential struggles that you've had with regard to racial equity? I mean, my observation of you over over a very long period of time is that you handle everything with, you know, grace and elegance and humor, but I but I can't imagine that you would have skated through all of these different environments that you've, you've been through without having some issues here and there along the way. I think a lot of how I have handled or dealt with, with um, you know, sort of racial biases um, yeah, has been sort of from my upbringing. And I'll just give you a little bit of background for those of you that, that don't know. I, I, I was in a boarding school at a young age in Swaziland, and, and it was a boarding school that was um, set up with the premise of uh, promoting international uh, tolerance as far as cultures go. Um, you know, they're called the United World Colleges, which they're, they're all over the world. They have, you know, satellite locations. And, and at the time I was there, um, it was the same time when Nelson Mandela was in prison. So Swaziland, basically, for those who don't know, is, is a landlocked country. Um, and it's surrounded by South Africa. And at the time, um, you know, whenever we would go to South Africa, um, you know, we would go to places where um, you would see signs that would say whites only, you know, coloreds, which were the uh, mixed races, and then, and then blacks, right? So, so you know, the, the impact of that um, was tremendous, but not so much from the perspective of, of um, you know, me feeling like my race was inferior, but more so from the perspective of um, being at this school where we had various races that actually respected me as an individual and looked beyond my skin color. So I think that early exposure and an understanding that, you know, there are people that would, would have certain opinions as far as, you know, who I am, you know, um, you know, and and those specific opinions may not necessarily be universal to other people, and and I think I, I learned that at a young age. Having said that, um, 
you know, uh, yes, I've lived, you know, growing in, in Canada and, um, and as well as here in the United States. And, and you know, I will say, um, you know, as far as racism, as far as uh, racial bias, I, I think for the most part in, in Canada, it, it is prevalent. Um, it's subtle, right? It's very subtle. And, and you sort of see it um, as you sort of live your daily life. And, you know, just to give you a, a random example, um, you know, I've had many occasions where, uh, you know, you'd go to a store and for whatever reason, um, you know, you'll notice someone following you around the store, right? And, um, you know, it's not like you're the only person in the store, but you, you're sort of, you're aware of those little sort of subtle subtleties um, where you, you feel like you're being singled out um, because of your race. Um, you know, as far as the educational system goes in Canada, um, you know, one of the norms for me going through the system was was pretty much being, you know, one of the only black people within within my class um, or within a given group, right? And it, you know, it, you know, within Canada, you, you sort of, um, you know, because it's so diverse um, as a whole, the impact of that isn't isn't as great. Um, you know, but, but I think when you come across over to the United States, the impact of that becomes more, more relevant. And what I mean by that is I think there, there's um, systemic perceptions, uh, biases um, uh, when it comes to race here in the United States. Um, and and it, it's, it's deeply rooted within this, within this country, you know, going back to the slave trade. And I think part of the challenge here in the United States has been um, changing that sort of systemic perception uh, of different races and, and the stereotypes that are out there, um, where if you see a certain person of a certain race, there's this automatic assumption that they're either up to no good or you know they they, they can't excel at at uh, you know uh, a at one thing or the other, right? So um, yeah, I've had quite a few. I've had uh, you know quite a few experiences with, with regard to uh, racism, um, and my my, my first encounter here in the United States. When I went to, when I was in Boston for, um, for my, um, my postdoc, um, you know, I, I, I took the opportunity to walk around, um, you know, Harvard and, and whatnot. And, and um, you know, obviously dressed like everyone else. It wasn't really anything unique about, about, about how I looked. And uh, I remember this, I mean, distinctly. So I, I, you know, I decided to go check out the labs um, within the medical school. And, you know, there's always a security guard at the door. Um, and uh, so I, I walk in, and um, and automatically the, uh, the security guard says to me, he goes, oh, you know, you must be here to, to come and, and, and fix our plumbing, right? <laughs> and uh, wow. And uh, you know, I, I, I was a little taken aback by that by that statement. Um, and uh, you know, it, it, you know, immediately I was, I was a bit surprised actually that at the at the at the, at the, uh, at the uh, you know that that statement. Um, and I you know I said to him, I said you know. Um, I said, "How did you guess?" <laughs> um, and, and you know, and he said, "Well, there's not a lot of people like you around here, right? As in within that work here um, in this facility." Uh, and I said, "Wow!" I said, "Fair enough." So I said, "Actually, no, uh, you know," and I had my, you know, my all my papers as far as registration and whatnot, and, and the fact that I was I was there um, as, a, as a student. And I said, "No, actually, I'm I'm actually here to to." to Take a look at the lab because I'm, you know, I'm one of the uh, postdocs here, and and I mean, you should have seen the look on his face. But I think for me, the the most striking aspect of that was the immediate assumption, right? And that assumption was based on the fact that um, 
even within that building as a whole, um, there were not a lot of professionals or students or researchers that, that uh, looked like me um, and that were there. And so in his mind, um, you know, the immediate perception was, was that I was there to do some, some job that he would typically see someone of my color doing. Um, you know, and so that that was a you know a harsh and rude awakening to, to racism uh, and race relations here in the United States. And I think throughout the training, you, you do experience it with some patients. Um, you know, I, at the end of the day, I think you know my goal is to you know as as we all swore, you know, first do no harm. And I think as long as we impart that that uh, that understanding to our patients, um, then then you know we just sort of. Um, you choose to ignore the other aspect of their perception of you as a as a as a as a as a given race, right? As a black uh, physician. So, um, I will say, um, you know, the the stereotype here in the United States is, is really strong, and it's not so much even amongst those that may be primarily white, but even amongst black people, because uh, you know, within a hospital setting, you know, you'll see patients who happen to be black as well, and they they do comment on how how um, you know, proud they are to see someone like me doing what I'm doing, right? And that, that to me is, um, you know, obviously I'm very appreciative of the, of the, of the statements, but, it, but it's also very disturbing um, to, to hear that because, um, you know, you ask yourself, why is that such a, um, a tremendous feat for someone of color within this system, right? Why is it that people are, are shocked or, or um, amazed to see someone um, you know, like myself in a certain position. And so I think it just lends itself to some of the, the, the institutional um, uh, racism uh, that, that is here, the, the prejudices and the, and the um, stereotypes that, that seem, to, um, seem to be out there. And, it, you know, a lot of it is, is um, also promoted by some of the social media as a whole. So, so yeah, I've, I've had my encounters, you know, but by and large, I think I had a good foundation as a child and early exposure to knowing that there are good aspects of human beings um, and there are bad aspects of human beings. And I think if you choose to view it as such and to recognize that not everyone um, thinks along the same lines, and I think, I think you're, uh, you're one step ahead of, of, of everyone else. It is impossible to talk about this topic, as, as you mentioned, without talking about the role of social media and all of this. If you haven't been living under a rock for the last two weeks, you know about what's been going on uh, with the Black Lives Matter protests, what, what happened with George Floyd. Uh, and I think a, a big part of that has been social media and, and the role that that's played both in the protests and in the response to that. Um, and one of the things that I've often thought about and, and, and really struggled with is this whole idea of where do physicians fit in in terms of advocacy uh, on social media. So um, I sent you guys all the link uh, to a paper that was done by Langenfeld and others that actually looked at social media usage among surgeons and surgical residents. And what they were trying to do in the study is identify any unprofessional uses of social media. Um, and, and they found quite a lot. But one of the interesting things that I noticed up front about that paper and, and other papers like it is that they actually label as one of their criteria for being unprofessional as espousing a particular political opinion or having very strong political leanings. And I've always really struggled with that because I think on on one hand, it is impossible for me as a physician who cares about 
the health of my patients on a broad level to not speak out on something that I think is is dramatically and tangibly impacting their health. And, and I think racism in, in the U.S. and in Canada does play a huge role in uh, affecting uh, parts of our population and, and affecting the lives of uh, black people in the United States. And then on the on the flip side, I really struggle with this idea of you know being a professional, and I wonder how a patient would feel um, in in terms of if they knew that I had a particularly strong political leaning. And so maybe I'll I'll turn to Dr. Hamid, um, as, especially in your role in the UBC. Where do you see physicians um, straddling or navigating that role uh, as? Um, physicians who are impartial but also care about their patients uh, on social media. Amir, I was I was afraid that you were going to ask me this question. Um, as someone who's maybe uh, tweeted like three times in his life, um, I uh, I've been slow to um, use social media. Uh, interestingly, in the last few weeks, I have relied on Twitter to find um, all the articles that have been coming out um, about. Um, structural racism. And uh, I've been following some of the tweets of the surgeons who are most active in this area to try to gauge the way people are processing everything. Um, I think social media uh, has tremendous use in that way uh, to kind of democratize information and uh, to, um, I guess, in some ways, amplify um, injustices so that they can they can be seen um, by everybody. Uh, and so in, in that sense, I, I've actually uh, coincident with COVID nineteen and with um, with this um, with these uh, George Floyd um, related protests, um, I've relied more on social media than than I ever have before. It's been useful to me uh, just just to follow these um, uh, these movements. Um, I also noticed that in the traditional media, uh, which is um, increasingly polarized, uh, that small incidents can be. Um, can, can also be amplified uh, sometimes just to just to increase traffic um, and so I think it's important to uh, uh, to bring a, a lot of objectivity um, to what we're seeing in both in social media and conventional media because I think the line between those two things is is getting a little bit blurry um, uh, but uh, you know I think if we navigate this in a sober way I think we can stand to get a lot of information um, and I think that uh, emerging social movements have a lot more power than they did before, which I think is really good news uh, uh, for all of us who are working in this area. Dr. Kamali, maybe I'll ask you, do you think it's unprofessional? And I, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but but I'm, I'm, I am, I, it's something that I struggle with and as someone who uses Twitter a lot. Do you think it's unprofessional for, uh, let's say, a surgeon or a surgical resident to uh, overtly come out and support a particular political leaning? Well, I guess it depends on, you know, where, how you do it and where you do it. So I know like on, I'm, I'm pretty active in social media. So I know on Instagram and Facebook, there's, there, you know, there's a group called white coats for black lives matter. And, and it's, it's a, it's a strong group. So it's primarily doctors who, who stand up and, and, are, you know, are, are doing their best to convey the, the black lives matter movement, which is very important right now. So again, that's, that's an important uh, political platform. I guess it depends on, your take you know i have friends who who are on social media and, and they post on their own personal accounts and 
you know, some are very, very vocal, but, you know, I guess it depends on, on where you're posting and how you're posting. If you're posting as, as a physician representing a certain group, I think you have to be cognizant of what you're posting. Whereas if you're an individual, I mean, you have the right to free speech. I mean, as long as you're not doing it within your workplace or doing it in, you know, in a capacity where you may be impacting other people or impacting you know, at least for in the healthcare setting, your patients, then I think you're pretty free to speak as you wish, realizing that you have to be careful with what you say, because uh, it can impact you both personally, as well as professionally. So um, in the end, it, it comes to that dichotomy of, you know, free speech versus, uh, you know, um, uh, versus, um, you know, Im impacting what your career is, right? So I think it's, it's a happy balance and we have to all decide what's more important in terms of that balance. Right. And if you feel that what you need to say is, you know, regardless of what you say is, is what you want to convey, then you have to make that decision for yourself. Right. Dr. Abano, I think you're perhaps more directly affected by what's going on in the U S than, than any of us. What's your take on the huge, um, you know, uh, discussion that's going on going on, on Twitter. And, and I'd, I'll put the link for this in the show notes as well. But one of the things that, that I found particularly powerful was the, the hashtag black in the ivory, uh, where people talked about their experiences being black, very, very similar to what you described um, while in academia or in medicine, uh, etc. What are your thoughts on, on this very uh, challenging topic, particularly, uh, I think, if you're a trainee? Yeah, so I guess the question pertains to being black in a, in a predominantly non-black environment uh, as far as the education system goes. I think, you know, I think that the challenge is, is one, recognizing that and not having that affect how you perceive yourself. What do I mean by that? Well, you know, um, within this society here in the United States, the overall perception when it comes to minorities and, and you know, people of color is, you know, is the fact, is the suggestion that um, they may not be as, um, as intellectual as, as other, others, right? And so you, you have yourself in the scenario where you're the only um, person of a given color in an environment that already has this, um, you know, stereotype of, of your abilities and capabilities. And so, so I think for those that, that um, don't have a solid, um, you know, ground or foundation, um, as far as who they are as an individual and what they're about and what they represent as far as the capabilities, that can be a struggle because because there will be a lot of challenges um, throughout the training program. And, and you know, in as much as, uh, you know, we talk about free speech and, and that free speech hopefully, you know, would be um, supportive of, of a more acceptable environment, there are those that don't have that same mindset. And so navigating that um that is is, is challenge out and i'll give you an example and this is actually just recent we had a um you know one one trainee come in from a different uh transfer actually but two years ago from a different uh, institution where um they went through a lot of hardships um you know as in as much as not being given the opportunity to to operate and just being made to feel insecure about their capabilities and um and so it, it got to the point where they they um they left the program and, uh, you know, we, we, we accepted them and, and, uh, and, um, 
there was a little hesitation up front because you know someone's leaving another program you wonder what what actually happened but the reality was and i had a conversation with before you even started and i said you know um you know part of the challenge is 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 one proving to yourself you know um what you're capable of, but the other is just you know proving to other people and i said you know when it comes to training you know the perception of 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 who you are as an individual or trainee um, should not be dictated um, by those that, that criticize you, know, you because what you feel are, are racial biases. In other words, um, know what you're capable of, work hard, and the rest will follow suit. Um, and, and he did an amazing job. Why? Because he was given a lot more opportunity, a lot more independence, and, and, and a lot of it had to do with um, you know, giving him the, the confidence within himself surgically um, and he flourished. I mean, he just, uh, and he's a bright kid, but he flourished, uh, and, you know, and, and graduated, um, um, you know, with, with, uh, with, with great um, recommendations and so forth. So, so I, I think within a system, one has to uh, acknowledge that, yes, there are biases. And, and I think more, it's more important to work on, on, on yourself uh, as that unique race realizing that, um, you know, whatever stereotype is out there, your goal is not to prove anyone wrong, but to better yourself, both as an individual and as a physician. Um, because, you know, un you know, undoubtedly, you will encounter scenarios where, where um, you're treated a certain way because of that. And, um, and this, is, this is not just here in the United States, but it's also in, in Canada. And the hardest thing is day after day after day dealing with that, um, that whole concept of, you know, maybe I am not as good as, as as I think I am. Maybe I'm, you know, inferior to those that are around me, which which can really play a take its toll on a, on a, a you know on anyone going through a program, right? It's an, stressful enough being a trainee, but throw that into it, and it, it becomes um, you know that much more stressful. That's that's very well said, uh, Julius. There's no doubt. Morad, if I was to ask you, um, how, how do microaggressions play into this? Maybe in the Canadian context, because as you and I have discussed before. Um, and as really Julius and Shaz have both pointed out here, I, I would I would argue that again, as you know, being very cautious as the as the middle-aged white male in this conversation, that overt, um, ag almost aggressive racism, at least in my experience and observation, it is much less common in Canada. But probably the way that we we um, we end up manifesting that is through microaggressions. What what's your, what's your thought on that? Yeah, thanks, Chad. Microaggressions uh, was a bit of a new idea for me, and uh, I uh, I didn't. Um, it took me a while to understand how they might have affected me. Uh, uh, I'll, maybe I'll tell you a story. Um, I was um, a visiting professor at a university, not in Canada or the U.S., and um, I was waiting to be introduced to the head of the Department of Surgery, and I was in a, this oak-paneled um, office waiting for him to come out, and the uh, the paint the pictures on the wall the portraits were of all the previous chairs of surgical departments and um, they were all um, old uh, white men and so I looked with interest and you know tried to imagine how their lives were in each decade that they were chairs but I was a little bit nervous uh, and I didn't quite feel at ease uh, and when the chair came out finally to meet me he was um, about maybe five six and an Indian guy. And he was like super cheerful and, you know, and he said, well, you know, come on in, you know, uh, how are you doing? And I realized that a little bit of sense of relief at that moment. And I thought, um, 
that sense that you may not belong in a room, I, I guess, um, is, is what what micro, how microaggressions make you feel. And you know, th those microaggressions may not even be uh, intended. Um, but um, you know, I've, I've been very influenced by Daniel Coyle's book, uh, The Culture Code, um, about how to build uh, cultures that uh, that promote uh, imagination and risk and success and one of the key elements of a successful culture, according to, to Daniel Coyle, is um, is belonging. Like to to um, address that fundamental human need to belong. Um, and even if there are subtle cues that you don't belong, I think it detracts uh, from from a culture. And and it and all of us um, bear the cost of that uh, of that uh, limitation of of culture. Uh, we all need everybody. We we need input from from all diverse perspectives to to have the best organizations that we can and i think that those microaggressions whether intended or not can totally derail uh, entire cultures i couldn't agree more and more I'd, you know in particular coil's book it teaches us so much about so many things but you know I, I always sort of took that 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 book as as exactly what you said but the other half is creating and they go hand in hand but the other half is creating a safe environment where you feel like you say welcomed and that you're able to share and be honest with those around you and and certainly in in healthcare with a traditional you know hierarchical model um there's been examples where, where that's not been the case and, and when you look at some of these experiences whether it's james kerr's legacy book about the all blacks that's probably the single uh, greatest and most sustainable team concept um, being their rugby team in, in New Zealand. Really these these same sort of concepts of eliminating microaggressions, providing a safe uh, environment where you know honesty and openness and conversation can happen really equate to long-term success and, and do, to be honest, have to be revisited over time as well because e even with the best intentions, these things get stagnant. Uh, there's somebody uh, there's somebody who me about which is um Scott Page, um, the economist, uh, who talks about diversity and complexity. And um I, I was struck by that example. Uh he talks about diversity in organizations and um he says that a lot of us think that having a diverse organization is a is a moral imperative. Like it's nice to have in a progressive society. Um but it but he argues that it's not just a nice to have, it's like it yeah, and, and he goes on to do this mathematical derivation that team actually outcomes when it tackles complex problems than a more homogeneous team. Um, and I think you see of like um, if you take the top ten students from a two hundred cl uh, business class, two hundred student business class, uh, and you can pick those top ten by any criteria that you want, um, and then you take a random sample of ten people from that same class. It's the random sample that will always, almost always outperform uh, for complex tasks simply because they bring more perspectives and they work through problems faster. So it, it's not just a nice to have, it's uh, diversity is, uh, is uh, essential to have. Shaz, maybe to you, the Annals of Surgery recently published a statement that uh, was formal and it prioritized uh, rapid peer review, publishing, and then, and then studying. Um, uh, equity and diversity, and uh, uh, in particular within the surgical workforce, and and their their desire to have those papers submitted, and we tried to do the same thing in the Canadian Journal of Surgery in October with an editorial last year. And when we looked at it, 
you know, the Canadian Journal of Surgery accepts about 50% of, you know, equity and diversity related papers, whether that's gender or racial uh, in particular. I'm curious as somebody who publishes a fair bit and lives in that academic world with a lot of us, what's your view on that? And do you think that the traditional peer reviewed um, journal process and outlook in that way would be helpful or is the social media world much more important? Yeah, so you know the craziest thing, Chad, is like I, the the craziest thing when you think about it right now. In 2020, we're still talking about stuff like this. Like, I mean, it was just amazing looking at the news and yes. looking at looking at NASCAR. Like NASCAR just took away the Confederate flag in NASCAR. Like, what what is going on? Like, I don't. It, it's just it's just fascinating and intriguing that we're talking in 2020, and they're in you know, especially in the U.S., they're taking down you know monuments of slave owners, which they shouldn't even been up. And so it's, it's always a question of like, what, what are we doing now? Like, does it, it makes no sense. Right. And so I guess tackling that question of, you know, diversity and publications on, I guess you can, you can publish all you want on it, but I, I think in the end, you know, you publish on it and then you know how it is. A new cycle changes and something else comes about it. I think the better idea is trying to figure out what, what we can do to, you know, improve things. So, Rather than that is, I mean, I think the idea is encouraging publications from diverse groups of individuals, right? So, you know, um, publish on, on whatever concept you, you want to you tackle on. I mean, I think we can, we know, we know, we know there, we know there's lack of diversity. We know that there's microaggression. I think that's known. I think the, the next step is, you know, what, what do we do about it? And that's, that's why, you know, this Black Lives Matter movement is very strong and I hope it doesn't stop. I mean, it, you know, it comes about and it goes away. And that's why I think, you know, all groups uh, need to need to link up and, and work with Black Lives Matter and, and really support this movement, because I think this movement will move forward, even if, you know, I, I'm not African-American by by descent. But I think supporting this movement supports all of us. Right. It's right now we realize that you know, our African-American brothers are being marginalized. So as a group, we need to stand up for them. And so I think that's, that's a take. So I guess getting back to your question, you know, is, should there be a push for racial, you know, papers talking about, you know, diversity and, and racial, um, you know, a racial imbalance? Sure, there, sure there should be, but we know this is going on. I think the push should be figuring out how we improve things. Like what are we doing to improve things rather than just saying, well, it exists. Thanks for thanks for publishing my paper on it. Certainly, one of my concerns, you know, as a again a middle aged Caucasian male, um, surrounds the the legacy or the or the future of of, the, of this movement. And and you said it so eloquently. What what I you know like personally, I'm really excited about it. Like this conversation has to happen and it has to continue. Like you like you comment, but Julius, I'm. I'm a little bit concerned about the the political or the polit- politicization of this in the U.S. And it seems like the purity of the message in only two to three weeks is now being diluted into potentially many other things that certain groups, left or right, are using uh, maybe for other less altruistic purposes. Is is that an over an overcall on my part, or is that something you see is going on? down there I, I i tend to agree with you actually i i i think um i, I think that is a case you know it, it, it's interesting how um you know shaz point out you know there's, there's been a lot of um 
incidents where you know that whole Black Lives Matter movement has come about, but but for some reason um, this time things are different. And I, I think in the past, uh, more often than not, the reason why things die down or, or, or so that drive or passion sort of fades away is because it becomes associated with some other aspect of, of either politics or what have you that really deletes out the the essence of, of what 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 that means, right? And 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 it's unfortunate because I think here in the United States, um, you know, this whole bipartisanship, uh, you know, as as much as politics, and now how it's sort of um, invading, as it were, you know, the healthcare system, religion, other aspects of, of our daily life, is 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 um is is quite disturbing. And and I think uh, you know until we view um, until we view things in a sort of a neutral zone without bringing and um, masking the essence of what we're actually trying to, to deal with, um, we're, we're always gonna have that issue, right? Um, you know, I think Canadians are, <laughs> uh, Canadians are a bit more level-headed as far as uh, when it comes to politics and, and their understanding of some of the social issues. And so by and large, I think Canadians fully do understand, um, you know, what, 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 uh, what that means as far as Black Lives Matter and, I, you know, I, and, and a diversity as a whole and I, and I you know I, I I hear it here a lot where people for some reason feel that um, you know it, it's diminishing the other races which it's not it's just acknowledging a particular race as being as relevant as the others right so so the politics here is, is pretty is pretty intense um, and uh, it does do do the message unfortunately um, it um, it, it can cause a certain debate, but I think this time it's a little different and, and we'll see how, how it pans out, especially, um, you know, with, with the upcoming elections in, uh, in November. So, yeah, I'm sure they will be dramatic. I, I have no doubt of that. More, um, you know, as, as we get closer to the end of, of the podcast here, and again, thank you to all of you folks for, for helping us better understand this as, as listeners. Um, Moet, I'm curious uh, from the uh, leadership point of view, you know, you run a very big program in, in UBC with a lot of other talented people. I'm curious how, how you see the concept of structural racism, maybe locally or certainly nationally, and, and what your thoughts are on some of the th ways that we can improve, um, maybe collectively as well as specifically going forward. I'm, you know, I'm still learning a, a lot about this uh, and um, trying to listen uh, to figure out the right strategy to move forward. Um, I've certainly learned uh, tons from all of you uh, tonight and um, learning from my from my colleagues and waiting to hear back from our residents and medical students about the right course to chart. Um, and particularly, uh, I've been influenced by one of my colleagues, uh, Hamish Wang, who's a general surgeon in Vernon. And um, he uh, he's really felt strongly that uh, whatever we do, and I think all of these wider social movements are reminding us and empowering us to think more deeply about this and to scrutinize everything uh, that we do, um, to look for uh, uh, evidence of structural racism, racism that's embed embedded in our clinical decision-making and in our resource allocation, um, and um, really to take a longitudinal approach. Like this is not, uh, this is not a quick response or uh, this, is, this has to be a long-term sustained response. And uh, I think any response has to uh, be nuanced. It has to think about the different types of racism and bias that exist in our system, whether it's by race or 
culture or language and and how patients might be marginalized because of these things and then to design um, culture or race or um, uh, or socioeconomic status specific um, approaches uh, to diversity and exclusion um, so I, I think that this this has to be um, the standard operation of surgical divisions and departments from now on is to, to always have an eye on on diversity and um, inclusion and culture. Shaz, what, what do you think we can do in within Canada to to continue uh, going in the right direction here and continue to improve things? Well, you know, I think the main thing, Chad, is as individual people, we have to speak up about racism. I mean, there was just an article published, um, I think, in BC where they uh, noticed that, uh, you know, there's an emergency department in BC. They were actually taking bets on um, Indigenous people coming into the ER and betting, you know, having bets on who can guess their blood alcohol level. And, you know, it's things like that that really needs to be raised. And as individuals, whether you're black, brown, yellow, purple, pink, whatever you are, I think if you see, you know, whether it's, you know, overt racism like that, or even indirect racism, or even, you know, microaggression, I think it's important to speak up and, you know, mention, you know, this is not the right way to do it, or, you know, raise it to higher levels. That's the only way we'd be able to fix things by working together. Like if you just rely on one group to do it, I don't think it'll work. But as a community, as a population, you know, we have to all agree that, you know, it's not the right thing to do. And that's why, you know, go back to Black Lives Matter. This is where everybody supports the same movement to say that, you know what, it's not right. We all support it regardless of who we are. And I think that's that might be the only way we can kind of fix a, the inherent promise lasted till 2020 already, right? Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it's or it feels like maybe we're finally in a time where or intentional insensitivity or maybe even blind ignorance is finally on showcase. And and that showcase is going to allow all of us, particularly those affected, to to point out some of these issues. Um, and, and call folks out on it when, you know, hopefully in a productive, constructive way, but uh, um, moving forward. Julius, we'd love to give the last word to, to, to you and, and get your thoughts on how to move forward and, and what we can do both in Canada and, and beyond. Yeah, so I think, I think first and foremost, um, you know, the first thing to do is, is understand and appreciate and acknowledge that diversity is important um, and that diversity plays a huge role in how we function as a healthcare workforce, how we function in terms of the trainees that we have and, and, and developing our trainees. Um, and, and then also in, in terms of addressing some of the healthcare disparities, um, you know, you Shaz is an example of, of um, that emergency department really um, lends itself to the importance of diversity. Why? Because there's an element of sensitivity to um, various cultures that as a physician, uh, we should be able to recognize, right? And, and for those of us that may have some preconceived perception of minority uh, patients, um, you know, we need to have that sensitivity to, to recognize that, that this may play a role in our ability to treat, um, you know, minority patients. And it may also contribute to, to some of the disparities in healthcare among racial and ethnic minorities. You know, having a diverse workforce would, would at least um, help curb some of those incidents as much as educating your peers um, as to the importance um, of, of um, being sensitive to, to, to various cultures. 
But I think on a, on a positive note, um, you know, when it comes to diversity, I also think of, of research. And, you know, more recently, there was a, um, a successful, um, so far, um, you know, experiment using a genetic modification in a patient using CRISP, uh, you know, the CRISPR gene for, for sickle cell. And, and, and it's, it, it highlights the importance of not only educating um, uh, people about diversity, but also implementing research that addresses um, diseases that may be unique to certain populations. So, so that as a whole emphasizes the importance uh, all around of, of diversity, both in, in terms of uh, the research that we do and the education that we're able to impart. Um, you know, I, I think it's unfortunate that it took that incident of, uh, you know, this uh, uh, police officer and the murder of, a, of um, uh, you know, one civilian who happened to be black. But, but I think as a, as a nation, um, both here in the United States and in Canada, it, it really has increased and heightened our sensitivity to some of the, the racial biases that may be inherent either in the educational system um, or, or otherwise. And, and just as individuals asking ourselves important questions as far as race, race relations, and how it might impact our day-to-day -day lives, and, it's, and more so how we, we administer healthcare is, is important. So, so you know, I, I think the future looks promising. I do think there's a long way uh, that we have to go. But um, at the end of the day, I think, I think we're going in the right direction. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your comments and feedback, so feel free to email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or connect with us on Twitter at CanJSurge. Thanks again.